So don't tell Sherry. I hope you'll keep this between us, but I'm taking over the podcast this week. I believe this is the first solo episode I've ever done in this podcast feed. Sherry does them from time to time, and I do them over in my Startups for the Rest of Us feed. But this week, I have several thoughts, really five things that I've learned over the past 20 years. It's 20 years of entrepreneurship, but to be honest, it's really 45 years of life. And it's dealing with my own psychology. And so this isn't coming from a research perspective or a psychologist's perspective. It's coming from from me, a serial entrepreneur who has honestly made a ton of mistakes on the personal and the psychological front. If I were to guess, I would say I've made several times more mistakes in my relationships, taking care of myself and just staying mentally healthy. I've made more mistakes doing that than I have in business. And if I had been able to manage my own psychology earlier, I actually believe I'd be in a a different situation on a number of fronts. Not that I'm unhappy with where I am today, but I think it took me longer. And I think I have done more damage than I wish I had over the past 20 years. So today I'm going to be talking about five things I've learned about managing my own psychology. And I also plan to end the episode with one of my favorite stories that I learned recently. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So Sherry and I have been pretty transparent on this podcast about things that either she or I have been through or that we've been through together. And if if you're new to this podcast, Sherry is the normal host. She and I are married. She and I were actually the co-host of this podcast for 200 episodes. And I pop in every now and again and, and we chat. But today I just wanted to talk about some stuff I've been thinking about. And I had so much to say. And frankly, Sherry's booked all day today. I thought I would record this without telling her. And so um, it'll, it'll just be your and my little secret here. But she and I have been pretty transparent about stuff that has occurred in our lives over the years, starting five years ago. I guess it was about four years ago that it closed. But I was building software called Drip and sold it to a company in 2016. And that acquisition took about six months and it was very hard on me. And it was very hard on my family. And it was hard on Sherry and my relationship because I was so consumed and focused on this acquisition. And it was so difficult for me to do that I wasn't as present as I normally am. Like I am the core of me of who I am is extremely present father and husband and person to be around. But when I'm, I'm distracted by something that is anxiety provoking or that it's intense or that I'm really stressed about, I can tend to get sucked up in it. And so that drip acquisition happened about four years ago. And then for the next 18 months, I essentially worked a day job. We relocated to Minneapolis, which was a little bit stressful. It wasn't the end of the world, but we relocated there. And then the working a day job stuff for me was tough. I was going into an office and I had responsibilities and I was managing a team of, uh, you know, at a certain point it was like 12, 13 people. And there was a burden on me that hadn't been on me since before running my own products. It was just a real stressful time, hard time for me. Sherry at that time also was, she had left her job and left everything in Fresno and she was kind of on her own and had a bunch of free time and then was trying to start up 
Zen founder. And really, you know, we were trying to get that going. Then we went through a Minneapolis winter. We took custody of a child a year later that was very difficult. Sherry's dad was diagnosed with cancer six months later and, and then passed away, I don't know, 12 to 18 months later. And then she lost her brother to suicide that she's talked about all this on the podcast, but it's just devastating when you list it out. Everything I've just mentioned happened within, I believe it was three years or three and a half years. And when we tell people this, they're blown away by how just how much we have gone through and tried to do on our own. And, you know, we've done this all without family in town with three children, one of whom is, I'll say, challenging and, and we've had to homeschool and has been difficult just being in school. And so we've had all these life stressors. And as entrepreneurs, we thought we could do it on our own and we technically did, but it's really honestly taken quite a toll on us, you know, individually in our relationship. And at a certain point, I started looking back at things and, and Sherry and I've had conversations, you know, you go in and out of, of kind of closeness to then distance and just managing day to day and trying to keep yourself together. And then we'll be really close. And right now we're talking a lot about things and we've just been looking back at this four years saying, how did we even survive this? And, and what do we need to forgive each other for? You know, what permanent, semi-permanent damage have we done to one another or this relationship that we need to get over and get through because it's starting to come up? We'll have conversations about something and then one person will bring up, oh, remember back when you weren't here when I needed this? And it was like two, three years ago. And it's like, well, we can't, we've been married 20 years, more than 20 years. And I think both of us know that we can't, you just can't keep building on top of that foundation. You need the positives, you need the good experiences. And so as we've been looking back at this, and I'm actually, I've started seeing a therapist, a psychologist, and I haven't, I haven't seen one since 2007. So it's been 13 years and it's been too long, in all honesty. There's, there's no chance that I should not have been seeing someone during the acquisition and during all the stuff I was so... I was just so stressed, you know, and certain people can handle these things. When you hear that laundry list of what happened to us as a couple and individually, I don't know anyone who could handle that without needing help. And if that help is your family's amazing and they're in town and they can take the kids and the two of you can get away, that's great. We have never had that. We've never lived in town with extended family. And if your help is a therapist, that's great. If you have just a great community around you, if you're in a church community or you have longtime friends, we've moved a lot. So we've lacked that. And I think I have regrets. And to be honest, that's my first point is that you can't go back. As obvious as that sounds, you just can't go back. And so no matter what you think about, here's what I should have done. I could have saved this if I had done this differently. You can rethink it, but it doesn't change it. And I will be the first to admit that I am the king of regret. And my personality, if I don't fight against it, is to ruminate and to regret to regret past decisions, to regret past inactions, like not putting a stop to something that was stressful at work or not seeing a therapist earlier or just not taking care of myself or not putting the family first or the relationship first or, you know, what have you. I can sit and ruminate for hours and, and depress myself and I can make myself feel terrible and I don't think it helps. In fact, I know it doesn't help. And so this is part of me. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of founders do this as well. Maybe you don't, and that's great if you don't. But if you do, the thing that I start thinking about and I start telling myself when I start ruminating and regretting is that I can't go back. That's number one. Number two is that while you can't go back, you can look back. So it's a difference between trying to go back and change things and looking back as a, an impartial observer and to analyze but don't criticize. You analyze your actions, your decisions. You analyze the decisions of those around you, but you can't criticize them. 
There's a big difference, right? Criticizing is saying that was stupid. You were stupid. I was stupid. We should have done something differently. Should have done something differently. That's not helpful. What's helpful is what can I learn from this? What, looking back, would I do differently next time? What do I want to do better next time? And to reframe that. And for you, maybe this is a thought experiment. I do a lot in my own head. Some people need to journal this and just write it out. I think that's fine. I think taking a retreat. There's a lot of things you can do thinking back on a hard year, a hard three and a half years to look back, but not go back. And I myself have several takeaways that my hope is that for the rest of my life, I will never make these mistakes again. And I can't guarantee that, of course. But the way I feel now, looking back with this lens, and I've slowly gone from, I think, pain to some regret, to shame, to anger, to resentment. You know, you go through all these emotions, but I've eventually arrived at a little bit of, slight bit of impartiality to where I can go through it without kind of the trauma of re-experiencing it and say, what can I do better next time? The third thing I want to talk about is that none of us like uncertainty. I don't know anyone who likes the uncertainty of not having a decision made or of not knowing what's ahead. And if you're like me, you really, really don't like uncertainty. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I started companies is so that I could know exactly what was going to happen and I could plan and try to execute. And I, I shouldn't say exactly what was going to happen, but I, I would at least have an idea and I had some control of what was around me. And so I've made a lot of quick decisions as an entrepreneur and implementation is what I want to do. Because once I'm implementing, I'm happy, I'm moving straight ahead, I'm getting things done. But the uncertainty of unmade decisions and the uncertainty of where things are headed has always been very hard on me. And what I've learned is that at times I have made fast, even sometimes borderline impulsive, and I'm probably the exact opposite of an impulsive person. I overthink things too much. But I've made sometimes borderline impulsive decisions to avoid feeling uncertain. Because once you make a decision, at least the path is certain and you can execute. And I'm learning not to do that. And I'm learning to sit with uncertainty and to not make decisions just because it isn't comfortable. And to not make decisions when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're upset, when you're extremely happy, when you're really hungry, when you're, you know, when you're not just in an even keeled, totally, I'll say sober. And I don't just mean, you know, not, not drinking alcohol, but I just mean sober and in a place where you feel centered and like you're at a place where you can make a decision, especially if it's hard to undo, especially if it's mostly permanent or permanent, have a clear head when you make a decision like that and make that decision and then sit with it for days and think about it from different angles. And I don't mean perseverate, but I mean, put it in a doc or put it in a note or put it in a box and then revisit it every day cold, almost like writing an essay, right? Where I'll go through a rough draft and I put it in a box for a day or two. And then I come back and I reread it and I realize, wow, there's some really good parts. There's some really awful parts, but it's that cold reviewing of it that makes it feel like someone else wrote it and it allows you to revise it. And that's what I like to do with decisions. Wait until I'm in a good place. Wait until I probably have to make a decision or feel like it should be done. Make that decision, then wait, sit, sit, sit. And then at, at a certain point, it will just feel like the right decision. The fourth thing that I've learned is to be better at asking for help. See, I'm the youngest of four kids. I didn't ask for a lot of help as a child. And I don't know why I wasn't taught to do it. I was super self-sufficient. Like when I was eight, we got a computer, an Apple IIe, and I just picked up this huge tome, almost like a manual, and just learned how to code. And I didn't ask anyone to teach me, and we didn't have any courses, and there was no teacher, and I just slogged through this thing and learned it. And I remember doing a lot of things on my own. And that's great, right? It's a great skill to have. However, it's also a curse. 
because I have such a hard time reaching out and just asking people for help. I feel like I'm imposing. I feel like I'm going to be a burden on them. And maybe, again, this is from my childhood. I, I, I don't honestly know. I just know for me, I'm not good at asking for help. And I think most people are not. So whether that's reaching out to your spouse and saying, hey, this week I need help, like I'm underwater, I'm super stressed, and just being in tune with yourself enough to say like, this week is going to be hard, I need, your, I need you to have my back on this one. Or even just this day, I, you know, I woke up as an example, I woke up and I feel really distant from you and I'm, I'm struggling with it and I don't know how to channel that emotion, but you know, just being honest, these are hard things to say for me, uh, I'll speak for myself, but uh, you know, as, as a left brain engineer, as a male, as a, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is, but whatever was brought into me, it's hard, often hard for me to truly tap into how I feel and then communicate that in words. And I wished I'd been better at that. I think that, you know, again, looking back, not criticizing, but analyzing, that would have changed a lot of different stories over the past three and a half years. And that's something that I not only want to become better at, but have become better at in, in the past months. And I think you, know, you can ask for help from, from a friend where it's like, hey, can I just chat your ear off for 30 minutes? Can it be your spouse? Of course, probably not all the time. But now and again, your spouse will have your back, significant other, whoever. I think the idea of getting, you know, seeing a therapist, I mean, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you know that Sherry is, is a therapist and is pro-therapy and all that. And I, I don't see any stigma with doing that. Obviously, if I did, I wouldn't be saying it on this, on this podcast, but knowing that it'll just be between you and I, that, that does help. So yeah, I think that was another part with me not just saying, hey, why did I not get a therapist when I was trying to sell drip? Because it was some of the most stressful months of my entire life. So why didn't I think that I needed to talk to someone about that? It's insane to me. And I remember thinking about it and saying, oh, I don't have the time. I'm already too busy. I don't have the money. It was just a bunch of excuses to not ask for help. And so that is something that, I, that I'm going to change and I am changing in my life. And the fifth thing that I have learned over the past few years, and this is actually something I learned back in 2007 when I saw a, a therapist. Sherry's, Sherry's talked about this story. Um, it's, it's in our book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, where in 2007, she was at her internship and we moved to New Haven, Connecticut. We didn't know anyone. The winter was cold. We were both having a really hard time and we started talking about divorce. And we had this six-month-old, I think he was at the time, six to 12 months old. And we were started talking about custody and like dividing that. And we were like, what are we, what are we doing? Like we were early thirties and we were like, what, we have to fix this, you know? And so we did and we made it and I'm super happy and proud of us, you know, that, that we did it. But one thing I learned when I, I went to therapy that year to try to just sort my own stuff out. And it wasn't, it wasn't that anything with me was broken. It was both Sherry and I were both having a hard time meeting each other, you know, matching up. One thing the psychologist told me was she said, you ruminate on things and it's not helpful when there's no new information. And so point five that I've learned is this quote, no new information. If I have new information, I should incorporate that into my thinking. I should think, does that change a decision or does that change my path? But if there is no new information, it's rarely helpful to revisit and ruminate on something over and over without it. There are exceptions to this. Now, I think of trying to design a really difficult feature in a software product or trying to solve a really hard problem in business. And with those, I can ruminate creatively and not stress. It's not anxiety and stress driving it. It truly is a creative process. So I'll think through what if we put the button here and then it has a thing that flows down and, you know, some links here and I start doing UX in my head and then I'll step away. And while I don't have new information, when I'm doing the dishes that night, it'll come back. But it's, to me, that's a rush. That's like a, I don't remember what all the chemicals are, was a, a dopamine rush of like, man, this is fun and cool. And it's, I'm not ruminating in a negative way. What I'm more talking about is that rumination of, 
oh my gosh, I'm so stressed. Oh my gosh, my business is going to go under. We don't have enough customers. I'm not going to make payroll. And just over and over and over, not going to make payroll, not going to make payroll, not, or you know, whatever it is, but you don't have new information. So either sit down, and I'm talking to myself here as much as, as you, but I remember one month where I didn't think we were going to make payroll at Drip. And I started ruminating and I sat down in my journal, or it's a notebook, Moleskine notebook. I still have the page and, and I, I look back and I have all the options. And instead of being a whiny baby about it, and instead of sitting there and just ruminating and destroying my myself mentally, I have all these options. And it was like borrow from 401k, something I never did, hope to never do, but it was an option. I had uh, take out on a credit card. I had run annual sale to get some cash. I had run an annual sale with Hittail, which is another app I had at the time. I just had all, I have all these creative options and I wound up doing enough of them to pull in just enough cash that we, that we made it. And then Drip grew and then everything was behind us. But ruminating on that with no new information would not have been helpful. And it wasn't. It wasn't helpful until I either stopped thinking about it altogether or to sit down and actually try to creatively problem solve it. I want to end with a story that a friend of mine told me a few weeks ago, and it was, it was really impactful. This friend is a project manager at one of the largest electrical contractors in the country, and he ran one of the, if not the largest, job that they ever did. So think 100 million, 200 million electrical contracting job, building a massive campus for a big company whose you know, name, if I said it, you would recognize it. And when he got to the job, he knew the general foreman who was extremely good. And I think it was this guy's last job that he was ever going to do and he was going to retire. And my brother opens the fridge in the trailer to put his lunch in there and he sees one beer and you can't have, you know, any type of alcohol on a construction site. And so he said, Hey, Jim to the foreman and Jim's not his real name, but I'm just anonymizing, you know, for, for obvious reasons. He said, Hey, Jim, we can't have alcohol on this. What is this? And he said, Rick, also not my friend's name, but he said, Rick, this is going to be the hardest job you ever do. It's going to be the hardest job I've ever done. And I've been doing this a long time. This beer is the Armageddon beer. And we're going to have some really hard times. And when that happens, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, should I get the beer? And if you say yes, what we're going to do is we're going to come into this trailer. We're going to each drink half of this beer. Then we're going to drive to the office and we're going to put our keys on the superintendent's desk and we're quitting. We're walking out. If it ever gets that bad, that's our ripcord. That's our escape hatch, if you will. And he was kind of puzzled. I mean, it's just such a quirky thing to say when you think about it. So over the course of this one, it was like a year-long job that should have taken three years, but it was compressed. So it, was, it really was one of the hard, probably one of the hardest electrical jobs, you know, ever done in this type of, uh, in this country, in this type of, of context. And there were at least two times, my friend told me, that someone came in and said, we just made a huge mistake. You know, for example, you order this equipment like a generator, right? You order it a year in advance or nine months in advance because it takes all this time to build it. And so what they do is they send you plans of what the bottom of the generator is going to look like and where the pipes and all the wires are going to come up. And you then have to go dig all these trenches and you run all this really expensive pipe that is really expensive to run and the labor and all this stuff. And then you pull the wire through and it has to exactly match that generator because you pour it in concrete. And this is so hard to undo if you get any of this wrong, if you're off an inch or two inches and the pipe doesn't match, you can't just cut a hole in the bottom of the generator. Everything's set. And so a generator comes in or a bunch of generators come in and all of the templates were wrong. And so someone comes in and says, the pipes aren't matching up. And my friend Rick, Rick just turns pasty white. He said all the blood rushes from him. He can just feel himself turn pasty white. And Jim turns to him and said, is this it? Should I get the beer? I love that moment. 
I love the thought of having this true escape hatch of if it's done, there is always an alternative. And in this case, it was the Armageddon beer plus putting the keys on the superintendent's desk and just calling it and being done. And Rick told me both times, I, he said there were two or three times where it was a catastrophic hundreds of thousands of dollars to undo and redo and schedule. I mean, just an absolute unmitigated disaster. But the moment that Jim would say to him, should I get the beer? He would flip from panic to troubleshooting, to thinking through what actually are the options? Because I really don't like that Armageddon beer option. That while, while we will do that, we don't have to do that. And so then he started saying, okay, how soon can we get a jackhammer out here? And how soon can we do this? And yeah, he had to go into a meeting and piss a bunch of people off because he had to say, we were on schedule and now we're not. And it's going to take us a week and we are going to eat whatever, two, $300,000 because it was our mistake or someone's mistake. But you know what? That alternative was better than the Armageddon beer. It's one of my favorite stories now. I think I'm going to, you'll probably hear me tell it on other podcasts too, because I just, I love the lesson of that. I love the lesson that it's rarely as bad as you think, I think is, is what I'm taking away from it. And there are, there are some exceptions, but there are almost always options to getting yourself out of these things. Thanks for listening to me talk through these things this week. I've been doing a lot of personal reflection and I hope these are helpful to you whether today or whether in the future as you continue on your entrepreneurial journey. Thanks for listening. And Sherry will be back next week with a regularly scheduled episode.